Well, unless this is your first Sunday with us at Trinity, and if it is your first Sunday with us at Trinity, we are, as always, so delighted to have you with us, and we hope that you will have found a very warm reception uh, here with our church family this morning, and we hope that you'll come back again. But for for those that have been with us uh, over the last year, you will note that in our current study of the pastoral epistles, and particularly on the back nine, the second half of the Apostle Paul's first inspired letter to a young prized pupil and pastoral successor in the ministry by the name of Timothy, who was uh, positioned by the Apostle Paul in the strategic ancient city of Ephesus, that we have established the fact that a major reason why Paul wrote 1 Timothy, likely, again, and this is going to show up important later on this morning, around the year 63 or 64 A.D., from Macedonia, as Paul himself would go on to carry the message of a crucified, risen, and now reigning King Jesus, even to parts that had previously been unfamiliar with the gospel, even as far as Spain, that you'll remember that we have established the fact that Paul's big purpose behind this wonderful correspondence was to remind us Christians how we were supposed to behave in God's church. That's really what 1 Timothy is all about. How believers should behave as children of the one on high. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 give us Paul's purpose statement. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that you, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Godly living as God's rescued and redeemed children, purchased by the grace of Jesus, which was shed on Calvary for us, is the sum and substance. It is the point and purpose behind Paul's pastoral letter to young Timothy. But specifically beginning with 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have noted that a significant dimension of Godly behavior in God's house concerns our proper respect and treatment of one another as God's people, as spiritual family members in the church. That's what we've been thinking about in recent weeks. You'll remember that our key word for this chapter, and really it bleeds into chapter 6, is that little word, honor. Honor. It's actually a play on Timothy's own name. One who honors God is what the name Timothy means. Paul has here instructed the church that everyone is to be honored. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Moms and dads, brothers and sisters, we are all to be honored in the church. Paul has reminded Timothy that the church is specifically responsible to honor true widows. Verses 3 to 16 of chapter 5. He also goes on, as we heard last week, to say that church leaders, particularly pastors and elders, are to be honored as well. Verses 17 to 25 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. And now fourthly and finally, in this lengthy section, Paul speaks to yet another important, even sizable segment, but a surprising segment of saints, and commands them to honor their own earthly masters. Yeah, you heard that right. Honor your own earthly masters, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Remember, and this will be important as well, the word honor in the biblical context can actually mean two different things. It can mean to give proper respect 
or appreciation, but it can also mean to give proper practical support or compensation. And here, clearly, I think we're moving to that first definition. They are to give proper respect and appreciation. Here's the point, as we put it all together, that everyone in the church matters. Everyone matters in God's house. Look up here at me this morning. You matter to the Lord. You matter to God. So often we feel unseen. We feel like we might show up in place after place and even at the church and nobody notices us. Dear friend, understand this morning that you are seen by the Savior. You are seen by others and you matter before the Lord. Believing in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ fundamentally transforms our behavior, and it actually radically reorients our relationships both to God and to each other in light of the kingdom. We are not the same on this side of grace. We shouldn't act the same this side of grace. We shouldn't talk the same this side of grace. And not only does that apply to our vertical relationship before a holy God in heaven, but it applies to our horizontal relationships before brothers and sisters in the church. Listen, only when we are believing what the Bible says and behaving how the Bible demands and, frankly, enables by the work of the Holy Spirit, will God be rightly glorified in His church and will will be uh, rightly positioned to build ourselves up in love, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul today, in my view, addresses an issue, a subject that was evidently a major issue, even a major problem or concern by this point in the development of the early church. But it is an issue that is a sensitive topic. And frankly, it is an issue that is a largely misunderstood topic for New Testament studies. It's a highly charged and controversial issue when you be talk, begin to talk about masters and slaves in the church. In essence, Paul speaks to a specific and yet sizable group within God's spiritual household, first century slaves or bond servants in the Roman Empire, and he calls them to respect and to honor, there's our key word again in the section, their own earthly masters. Notice whether they are believers or not. Now you might be saying here this morning, Pastor Dan, what on earth does that have to do with me living in 2023? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad you're here, because it does apply to us, and I'm going to show you that this morning. Before I read our text, I, am, I think it's important to read Colossians 3, verses 22 to 24. There Paul says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, just when they're looking, but, and as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Notice, you are serving the Lord Christ. Keep that in mind as we proceed this morning together. Well, let's hear once again the word our brother Jim read for us. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 2. This is God's word. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, 
so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Let's pause just for one moment and address a point here. The word reviled in the ESV, which is the translation that many of us have here this morning, could more accurately be translated blasphemed. It's actually the word for blasphemy in the text. Paul is saying, regard or consider your own masters as worthy of all of your honor and appreciation so that God's name, and what does Paul mean there? He means God's character as revealed in God's truth. The gospel may not be maligned or blasphemed. Pick up verse 2. Those who have believing masters, and there's a note of distinction, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. I want to linger on that last phrase, teach and urge these things. Paul has already used that or a similar phrase no fewer than seven times in 1 Timothy. Timothy, teach these things. Timothy, this charge, verse, chapter 1, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you to combat false doctrine. I am writing these things to you about those that are qualified for church leadership, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Timothy, I'm writing to you to keep your life and doctrine holy and useful, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, and verse 11, and verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 7, Timothy, command these things as well. Listen, the reason why I'm belaboring this point is that each and every time Paul uses that little Greek construction, teach and urge these things, he is drawing emphasis to what has already been said, not to what is next being said. In other words, the reason is that the phrase teach and urge these things links Paul's instructions in chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 to the previous discourse about proper care and respect and honor in God's house. Paul is wrapping up a section. He's not moving on to new stuff just yet. That's part of what I want to show you this morning. The message from 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 is actually quite simple. Just hard to live by. It's this, as Christians, listen to me this morning, as Christians, we are challenged, even we are commanded to honor whoever and wherever we are called to serve with all respect, with excellence of conduct, out of obedience to God, for a con out of a concern of the progress of the gospel and as a means of blessing others. Let me say that to you once more. This passage commands us to honor whoever's above us, wherever we are found with respect and the best possible work we could do so that God is glorified, so the gospel is not impeded, and so that our spiritual family is rightly blessed. That's really the long and the short of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses one and two, our life ought to build a foundation for the message that comes across our lips to be heard, seen, and embraced. Dr. John MacArthur puts it this way, displaying a proper attitude of submission and respect and performing quality work 
help Christians make the gospel believable. I'm going to come back to this idea several times this morning. Does your conduct as a husband, as a neighbor, as a colleague, as a teacher, whatever it is that God has given you to do, does it contradict the gospel or does it complement the gospel of grace? Are we getting in the way of people coming to Christ? That's part of what Paul is addressing here in this passage. I hope to show you this morning that the reason why Paul writes this is to address a particular problem in the first century related to the interpersonal relationships between believing bondservants and their earthly masters, both believing masters and non-believing masters. Evidently, many first century Roman slaves were taking their newfound freedom in Christ as a license for disrespect, as a license for delinquency, as a license for disobedience in their service to their earthly masters. Paul was putting his pen on that problem. And listen, not only was this potentially hazardous to one's physical health, remember that such behavior theoretically under Roman law could get oneself killed. But even more to Paul's point was that it was adding an unfortunate obstacle to the work of the gospel as the church being a witness for Jesus. It was impeding grace being received. Thus, Paul singled out first century slaves, bond servants, last of all in this lengthy section on right honor in the church, and gave them a clear spiritual rule for godly living in God's house. And it's simply this. Honoring those we are called to serve is one way we honor God himself. Let me say that for you again. Honoring those whom we are called to serve, if we like them or we don't like them, is one way we honor God himself. There are really two distinct yet related points flowing out of 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. In terms of an outline, this is our structure for this morning. Firstly, believing bondservants or slaves who were under a yoke. And that sounds just as it was, just as bad as it sounds. To be under a yoke is to be under control, is to be controlled by an outside force. It is to, to lack one's freedom. That is rightly what we should have in mind here. Believing bondservants under a yoke to unbelieving masters were to regard those who they served as worthy of all respect. Can you believe Paul here? You are supposed to give right honor to those who don't love your master and are over you on earth. We need to unpack that a little bit this morning. But the question is, why do we need to act that way? Why do we need to have such character? The answer, Paul says, is so that the name of God and the teaching, the gospel of Jesus, may not be blasphemed. It might not be reviled. When we are hard to work with, because our employer or our boss or whoever it is, is a jerk, is somebody who doesn't love Jesus, we are doing ourselves no favor in winning them to Christ. That's part of what Paul is saying. So the first point this morning, we have two points this morning, is Paul's command to Christian workers, Christian servants or bond servants in that context to rightly honor non-Christian masters, owners. 
employers. By the way, I'm going to repeat this in just a few moments, but we need to be very careful that this concept of bond servants and slaves and masters in the first century Roman Empire has much more in common with our modern concept, our social and economic concept of contracts between employers and employees than it does with that heinous and abominable practice of the 18th and 19th century slavery in England and the American South. Paul is in no way endorsing slavery. Please do not misunderstand the text. I believe that there are There is a direct line and application from verse 1 to the experience and obligation of many in the room this morning that the gospel commands those of us who know and love Jesus and yet serve even under non-Christian entities or owners or employers to give them all honor. We are called to honor them. We are to give them an honest effort. We are to give them a Christ-like attitude. Why? So that the gospel is not covered up by our activity, and by our actions. It's sort of like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. This is every parent's favorite verse. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, in, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Why do we need to not grumble so that the gospel could rumble forward, so the gospel can be seen and embraced? The second point, the second heading, and we'll come back to this in just a few moments, that Paul seeks to make clear here concerns believing bondservants to believing masters, Christian uh, employers and entities. And how believing bondservants have a blessed opportunity, even occasion, to bless and honor and benefit their believing masters. Again, to me, this text directly applies to many in this congregation who have the opportunity, because you work for Christian employers, to bless them with good, excellent work. You see, just because you serve the same master, Paul is going to say here, that doesn't give you an excuse to be disrespectful, lackadaisical, or lousy in your service to him or her. Instead, if you are a believer working for a Christian businessman or organization, you have a special opportunity. Not everybody has such an opportunity, according to Scripture, to benefit your spiritual brother or sister as an excellent servant. What a glorious chance to serve Jesus by serving somebody you share spiritual life with. That's part of what Paul is saying. Well, let's dive a bit deeper into verse 1, firstly this morning. Verse 1 says again, Let all all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, I've already addressed to some degree, and we'll circle back a little bit as we make some more comments concerning the why behind Paul's command. The why is the gospel. That's why. Why should we honor, respect all of our uh, employers, all of our masters? It's because of the gospel. But I want to focus now on the who. On the who. Let's unpack the who behind this challenging verse. And it is a challenging passage. 
Well, the Greek word translated as bond, servant, or slave is a word that most of you probably know if you've been to any Sunday school class or listened to sermons before. It's that little Greek word, doulos. You've heard that word before. It's actually Paul's favorite self-designation of his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul is not asking us to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. I'm a bondservant of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What is a doulos? A, a doulos, simply stated, is one who is subservient to another. One whose entirety is at the disposal, at the discretion of his master. It is a slave. Now, to be perfectly clear, there is not a one-to-one correlation between this term, doulos, and our modern social employee-employer contract concept. There are correlations, but there is not a direct connection in that sense. Listen, you might personally feel like your unbelieving boss is a slave driver. You might feel that way. But I would think that in most cases, you are free to quit and walk out the door anytime you like. Your boss, regardless of how bad they are, is not a slave driver. Be grateful that we don't live not just in the 18th and 19th centuries, but even in the first century in that sense. There's a correlation But there's also some major differences. Let's note a few of them. A first century doulos was really also not the equivalent, not just of today's modern employee, but also it's not the same idea, not the same relationship as those poor people that were brutishly beaten and mistreated as African slaves in the 18th and 19th centuries. Again, there is some overlap, but not as exactly the same. It is not the exact same thing. You see, their rights were severely limited. A first century Roman bondservant was severely restricted in his or her rights, but many of them actually could own slaves and did own slaves. Many of them could accumulate wealth over the course of their life. And in time, many of them could and in fact did earn their freedom. Often they enjoyed certain privileges and protections living under the protection of their master. Again, in the first century, slavery, here's one big difference, was not race-based. It was not based on some uh, uh, ethnic class conquering. It was not about that. Listen, there were an estimated 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 50 to 60 million. That is about a third according to scholars, of the entire population of the Roman Empire. The way that many people became a bondservant or a slave was by means of force, military conquest. I suppose that beats the alternative of being killed on the battlefield. I'm not exactly sure, perhaps not. Through military conquest, through abduction via piracy, Through deliverance from infant exposure, an unwanted child would be left for dead, but somebody would rescue them, and oftentimes they would find their way into being a slave. Or perhaps as the consequence of a crime, one could lose their freedom and become a bondservant. Some individuals even became bondservants as a way of paying off personal debt or even trying to survive. Here's my point. 
In the ancient world, unlike our world today, there were the haves and the have-nots. The middle class, as we might call it in 21st century America, in the first century was minuscule to missing. You either owned or you were owned. That was the idea. That's the idea. Again, according to many scholars, more than one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. 55 million people. So just imagine for a moment, for sake of illustration, everybody on this side of the church, everybody over here, you guys are free men and women. You guys are all bond servants and bond, bond slaves. Just imagine showing up to Ephesus, to church, and seeing this disparity. Masters and slaves. That's the idea. That's the context into which Paul is writing. You can imagine that before long, this ancient announcement of God's free gift of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ gained a popular appeal, especially among this lower class of people. Just imagine being a have-not in one moment, and by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, being an heir of the kingdom of God. You see why slaves often were pressing in to the kingdom and to the church. What a glorious announcement that I can be beloved, that I can have something that nobody else can touch and take away. This is what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Listen to this text. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither doulos or free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are one. The ground is all level at the foot of Jesus Christ, and praise God for it. Listen, in order to understand the background of 1 Timothy chapter 6, we need to mentally picture people coming to church, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and, and free, and rich and poor, and uniting as one people with one voice to praise one master, the, G, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to imagine when we read Paul's words here. Just imagine sitting down in the pew, and next to you is sitting somebody that has abused you, somebody that has mistreated you, somebody who owns the rights to you. That was the concept. That was the idea that Paul is speaking into to young Timothy. That was the reality of the church in first century Ephesus, and praise God, it's not the reality today. The power of the gospel, understand friends, fundamentally disrupted the social order of the first century. The gospel of the kingdom was now open and available to all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of class, of economic status, or of gender. I want to do a little bit of a digression here, because there is something I think, if you're paying careful attention to what Paul is writing in 1 Timothy 6, you might say, oh yeah, Paul, but what about, you, you, you might be tracking with me, and you might say, Paul, well, well, what about someone else here? Some people, some group are glaringly missing from Paul's aim in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Who are they? Well, again, who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to believing bondservants, 
Therefore, who's missing in 1 Timothy 6 are believing masters, believing slave owners. Where are Paul's words to the masters and the slave owners? Well, here again is where I think we can make an important discovery together this morning. 1 Timothy 6, understand, is neither the only nor even the first occasion in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul has written about master-slave relations in the first century. It's an important one. It's not the only one. Let me just point out a few of the big ones to you. The first text would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 20. Here Paul writes, Each one of you should remain in the condition, the class or status, in which you were called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Parenthetically, Paul says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. You're not obliged to stay in that status, but that should not be your ultimate aim or objective. Verse 22 says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. You have a new owner, Paul says. Jesus Christ has bought you at the price of his own blood. Listen, faith in the gospel of Jesus brings a new identity to those men and women who might find themselves in in the unenviable and unfortunate position of being a bondservant or a slave. Paul wrote to the Corinthians to address all sorts of important issues and questions But Paul's fundamental point, especially in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is that a believer's true identity, your ultimate identity, is not found in some new position. It is found in your freedom from sin and your position to Jesus Christ. That is your ultimate blessed identity. Your position in Christ by grace is the most important thing about you. Not if you're a pastor, not if you're a teacher, not if you're a parent, not if you're a business leader or owner. It is, are you a believer in Jesus? That's the most significant thing about you. Well, where else does Paul or the New Testament write about masters and slaves? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2 is one important place. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 to verse 21 Peter writes, servants, and again, here is the word doulos once more, be subject to your masters with all respect. So Paul says it, and so does Peter. Not only to the good and gentle, but also notice to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It is true and sad that under Roman law, it was lawful for a master to beat severely, even to kill at his discretion his slave, for whatever cause he, de- he determined. You did not want to be a bondservant in the 18th century or in the 1st century. There's no doubt about it. It is evident that many slaves, though, were horribly mistreated, but 
This is not the same type of slavery as the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, many slaves within the Roman Empire, upon gaining their freedom, which often occurred around the age of 30 years of age, simply continued on in their service to their same earthly masters, but now as freed men. There were no unions. There were no unemployment offices. It was a dog-eat-dog world. You either had or you didn't. You could either make... uh, a living for yourself, or you worked at the pleasure of somebody else. That's the idea here. So listen, the hard-to-see point that I'm trying to make here very quickly, that is tucked away in the context of 1 Timothy, is that the gospel in a relatively short amount of time had already had a radical impact, a transformational effect upon one of the two parties in this master-slave relationship. And it wasn't the slaves. It was the masters. Evidently in Ephesus, the big problem Paul needed to point out with his pen did not concern believing masters. It concerned believing bondservants. Now listen, when did Paul write 1 Timothy? I told you I'd bring this up again. Paul wrote 1 Timothy most likely in the year 63 or 64 AD. Three to four years earlier, Paul wrote these words that are found in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 9, 5 through 9. Paul writes this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Notice verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Sounds a lot like Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 and following, doesn't, doesn't it? The point is, evidently, it only took three to four years, friends, And in that time, whatever mistreatment was happening in the church between believing masters and their bondservants was largely straightened out. The gospel is just that powerful. But now by the mid-60s AD, and in the absence of any coercive or heavy-handed enforcement, it appears that a number of believing bondservants were now taking advantage of their position in the aftermath of the power of grace in the church. Oh, so you're not going to beat me to make me work any longer. Well, then I just won't work at all. Do you see what has happened? The pendulum had swung. And so Paul is now addressing a new problem. Listen, honoring those you are called to serve is a big way that you honor God himself. It's a big way that you reinforce the truthfulness of the message that you espouse. Make no mistake, church, when Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, he is talking about Christian subordinates considering their unbelieving superiors as worthy of all honor, even when you have to swallow deeply to do it. In this way, Christian workers today must endeavor to turn every, even the most challenging of situations into an occasion for Christ 
to show up. What better way for you to display the gospel than when you are mistreated in the community? What better way? Simply put, bond servants in the first century or employees in the 21st century that refuse to work and, and honor their masters or employ, employers dishonor God. And somehow they tragically disable the power of the gospel from saving others through their witness. Don't be the obstacle to the work of grace that God wants to do in you and around you. We are to be the living lessons of grace and of faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ, even among those who are perishing but are over us in our work. Let me just ask you a couple of questions before we pivot to the second and, and shorter point. How is your witness for Jesus Christ in your workplace? Are you a dependable worker? Listen, I'm not saying that we should stand out to be seen because we, we want to be seen, but I think we should stand out as believers. There ought to be such a difference about our work effort and our work ethic that people who don't know Jesus sit up and take note of us. And they say, what's different about you? Why, why are you such a diligent worker? And then you have the, opp the opportunity not to say, well, hey, I'm just better than everybody else. No, that's not what we would say, but I am a recipient of lavish grace. Something has happened to me by God in heaven. You can know it too. You open up such a channel for God's grace to pour through you when you respect those who are over you. Let me ask you another question. Are you struggling in your job? And I know many of you are. Are you struggling today in your workplace? Well, have you asked the Holy Spirit to help you, to sustain you, to give you just the right words to say and just the right occasion to say them? Are you relying upon the godly counsel of brothers and sisters in the church or are you going at it alone? You're not alone. Don't operate alone. We need one another. We need the encouragement and the wisdom and the counsel of one another. Simply put, practice Ephesians 4.1. Let your walk be a walk that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, be it in the church or in the community. Be it as you worship or in the workplace, live for the glory of Jesus. So that's really the first point. And the second point we will find in verse 2. Paul really takes the same idea, but he cuts in a very different direction. That is, not only would disrespectful and disobedient behavior, either by bondservants or by employees, depending upon our context, undermine a chance for us to share the gospel of Jesus to those who are lost, but notice also that it completely misses an opportunity to be a wonderful blessing to those who we serve who actually love Jesus too. It is no less a problem to diss your believing boss than it is to diss your non-believing boss. Well, we worship together. I, I, I don't need to do such a good job for him or her. We, we worship Jesus together. Paul confronts that head on. Both disses miss the point of right honor in God's household. Look at verse 2, please, of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, spiritual family. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
Our expectations don't go down. They go up when we serve a Christian business owner. Paul says something similar, by the way, over in Titus chapter 2 and verse 6. There in the context of interpersonal relationships within the church, Paul writes to Titus again around the same time as he wrote to Timothy. Likewise, Titus urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. That means to steal time even in this context, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Submission to Jesus means submission to whomever or whatever authority God has placed over you on earth. In some instances, that authority is going to turn out to be somebody who actually worships the only God who is, Jesus Christ. Somebody who belongs to your spiritual household, your own spiritual family, and you then have the excellent opportunity not only to bless Jesus, but to bless them as well. We have an incredible example and illustration of this very reality found in the New Testament. It's contained in the relationship and the story between a restored and repaired runaway slave and Christian slave owner by the name of Onesimus and Philemon. Now, I've preached and taught a number of times about these two men before, but I want to close with their story this morning because I think there is no better illustration of the principle that Paul puts in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 2. The details of their relationship are scant. But apparently a household slave named Onesimus, his name meant useful, one day fled from his master Philemon, who evidently eventually came to know Christ himself. And oh, by the way, it was in the city of Colossae, we believe. And on Onesimus's, um, as a fugitive, on his, on his run, he evidently linked up with the apostle Paul under house arrest They're in Rome. Now he heard the gospel and saw the gospel from the Apostle Paul, such that Onesimus' life was transformed by the gospel. He repented of his sin. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and he began to be discipled by the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine such an existence? Well, Paul loved him, and Paul mentored him, and Paul did something important for him sending him home to face his master and to grow in grace. This is where we want to pick up their story, which is found in Philemon, verse 10. Paul is writing a letter to Philemon, and he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed is useful to me and to you. I am sending him back to you, Philemon, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Verse 15, for this purpose, 
For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but notice, as much more than that, as a beloved brother, especially to me, how, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. Do you see what has happened here? Don't miss this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not predominantly about social identities and horizontal relationships. It is not primarily about that, but it does encroach upon that. The gospel is first and foremost about God's work of reconciling sinful hearts to his holy heart. It is firstly about our relationship with the Lord in Christ. But notice the true gospel has a transforming effect in all our relationships, including our employer-employee relationships. Onesimus, in accordance with what Paul had prescribed and what Paul commanded of him in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, had a new opportunity, now even really a new obligation, to serve an old master who is now a new brother in Christ. What a glorious reality of the gospel. And so Paul sent him back in order that he might grow up in grace. Sometimes we think we're going to grow when things get easy for us. No, we grow when things are hard for us. So Paul sent him back in order that together Philemon and Onesimus might learn to live in mutual blessed harmony under the lordship of Jesus Christ by the power of the gospel. He had to travel 1,200 miles for this lesson, but he did just that. Onesimus and Philemon then are a powerful illustration of the principle we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. Servants, employees who have believing masters or employers must not be disrespectful on the ground they are brothers or sisters, spiritual family in the faith. Rather, we must serve all the better because those who benefit from our good service are believers and are beloved. It is a blessing Friend, not a burden to serve a master who serves the same master as you do. It is a blessing. Well, listen, as I conclude this morning, I want to break some news to you. You're a slave this morning. There are no non-slaves that live on this round earth. Paul's entire argument in the book of Romans actually pivots on the blessed reality that those who now believe in Jesus Christ and have placed their faith in his perfect, perfect work of salvation are no longer slaves to Satan, slaves to self, and slaves to sin, but rather we are now slaves to righteousness, slaves to Jesus, and slaves to obedience. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves of sin, you have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You're a slave. The question is this morning, to whom are you a slave? And are you living, are you living an honorable life? And I trust that you're a slave of Jesus and there is no lighter yoke than his are you a slave to the loving Lord Jesus? And is your life flourishing before him? Two points this morning. If you are working or associated with somebody who is an unbeliever, don't let your life block out the light of the gospel. 
And if you work or under the authority of a Christian brother or sister, then you are strategically poised not only to bless Jesus, but also to bless a spiritual family member through your work. That's the point of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let's be good slaves for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, again this morning, we come to these passages, Lord, and it seems that they're always so challenging to us. But Lord, you give grace in proportion. You give just sufficient grace, Lord, for us to be able to hear, receive, and I trust, Lord, to now apply and obey what we have received this morning. Father, we thank you that our chains have fallen off in the gospel, that we are free in Christ, not free to do whatever we want to do, but now free to do what delights you. We are now free sons and daughters of grace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, but we should not become a yoke again of sin. So, Father, we pray that you would take this message, that you would challenge us, Lord, to be obedient uh, to it. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would use us in these two different contexts with unbelievers to let the love and light of Jesus shine through us in our honoring of their uh, of their ownership. And those who believe, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be a blessing to them, that you might be glorified, Lord, and the name of Jesus might be esteemed. We thank you as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.